The following message was recorded Sunday, October 29, 2023. Pastor Ritt continues his teaching from last week where he shares from Zechariah 13 on what God is doing in Israel and what the future holds. And now, he's Pastor Ritt. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to the chapel this morning. You do know that we're approaching a time of which the Bible speaks more of than any other, don't you? Hmm? We're approaching the consummation of the age, the end of times, the last days. The days of Jacob's trouble, or what we would call the tribulation period. And as we progress further into that time, into that day, the day of the Lord, it's going to be imperative that your minds are quieted, your hearts are at rest, and that you have the peace of God, with God and in God, right? The peace with God that comes through our reconciliation, through the blood of Jesus Christ. And then the peace of, of God that comes as we surrender and yield our life to his will. And then the peace in God as we are fulfilling all of his purposes and plans for our life in these last days. Is that not true? Yeah. And as your pastor, your brother, your friend, it's my responsibility to try to help prepare you for the days that are coming so that your minds are quieted, your hearts are at rest, and there's a shalom, there's a peace that you would acquire that the world doesn't give, not based upon circumstances, but a peace that's based upon our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, a true spiritual relationship, an intimacy, a fellowship that would bring such a joy that the world or circumstances could never steal from us. That's my prayer for you, that you would experience that depth of relationship with Jesus Christ through his word and through his person, that nothing will ever steal your peace and the joy that you have. Happiness is based upon temporal circumstances. Joy is eternal, and it's internal. It speaks of our relationship to him, amen? Yeah. So last week, uh, we started looking at some things that would indicate for us what's going to be taking place in the very near future. We broke from our study in the book of Acts. We were in Acts chapter 7, and Stephen is giving his apologetic or his defense for his belief that Jesus Christ is the Messiah of Israel, the Mashiach Nagi, right, the Messiah of the King. And he goes and rehearses the history of Israel. It goes all the way back to Father Abraham. When God called Abraham, he wasn't a Jew at that time, was he? What was he? A Chaldean. He was a Chaldean. He was a Gentile. God calls him out of Ur of the Chaldees. He goes to Haran. Eventually he goes to Canaan, to the land of promise. And the son of promise is declared, but grew a little impatient, didn't they? So rather than God's plan A, they decided on plan B, and Ishmael was conceived, right? Through the servant Hagar. And Isaac has been having problems with Ishmael ever since, haven't they? Yeah. But the son of promise did come, Hixak, Isaac, laughter. And then he, he bore two sons, right? Esau and Jacob, and God declares problematically for us that Jacob he loved. But Esau, hmm, hard for us to process and understand sometimes, the election of God, the calling of God the predetermined will of God. Hmm? 
But nonetheless, Jacob, he loved, and Jacob birthed the 12 tribes. And the favorite son of Jacob? Joseph. Joseph, the coat of many colors. And we talked about the fact that there was such similarity between the life of Joseph, the life of Moses, and the life of Jesus. And what has taken place in Joseph's relationship with his brethren, Moses' relationship to his brethren, and Jesus' relationship to his brethren. And so we broke for a little while from our study to, so I could help explain to you how it is that Jesus will actually bring about what Joseph and Moses did in type or in sign or in symbol of which Christ is the absolute reality, right? Joseph, we said, was like unto Jesus and that the first time he came to his brethren, they rejected him. And then Joseph went to the Gentiles. He went down into Egypt, and he rescued the Gentiles. He saved the Gentiles from the famine that was coming upon the world at that time. And through that salvation of the Gentiles, he was given a gift, a bride, a Gentile bride, the daughter of Potipharah, right? A sinner. And through that union, he had two children, two sons. But then eventually, eventually, he would call his father and his brethren all down to Egypt to be preserved, to be saved from the famine that was coming. So eventually, he would save Israel. Well, Moses in type as well, right? Moses was rejected by his brethren the first time. And he went unto the Gentiles. He went to Midian. And he saved Jethro's daughters from those wicked shepherds that day saving the Gentiles, and as a result of that, he was given a Gentile bride, Zipporah, the daughter of Jethro. And through Zipporah, he had two sons, children. But then eventually, eventually God would call Moses to go to Egypt and to deliver his people, to rescue Israel. All of that coincidental? No, the rabbi says, coincidence is not a kosher word. God is sovereign. No coincidence here. And we know that Jesus, John records for us in the Gospel of John, the first chapter, Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. The rejection of the Messiah by his own people, Israel. But that rejection was predetermined by God. And we've read that before in Romans 9, 10, and 11, how God had predetermined that Israel would reject their Savior, the Messiah, the first time. Why? Oh, boy, so that you and I could be saved, the salvation of the Gentiles. And so Jesus turned to the Gentiles because Israel rejected him. Came to his own, and his own received him not, but there's another coming in his own name, and him they will receive. And we know who that is. The whole world is waiting for Antichrist. Had a conversation the other day in my dermatologist's office, and he's asking me a zillion questions. I've always had a grand time with him and his assistant. Well, will we see the Antichrist? I said, well, if that's who you're looking for, you might. <laughs> but I'm looking for Jesus Christ. I'm not looking for the Antichrist. Paul in the apocalyptic literature of Thessalonians says that he who restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. And who is that restrainer? It's not the Holy Spirit? Why is it not the Holy Spirit? 
Because he's everywhere, because he's God, okay? So don't let anybody confuse you with a false doctrine and believing that that restrainer is the Holy Spirit. Nonsense. Where can I go from your spirit, Lord? If I send up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths of hell, you are there. Lord, where can I go from your spirit? He's everywhere, right? He's God. But it's the work of the Holy Spirit through the church, the ecclesia, the called out assembly, that is restraining evil, the Antichrist, right? And as we shared last week, it's restraining far more, too, isn't it? The evil that had been existing since day one. But we'll talk about that in a moment. But nonetheless, he was rejected by his own, and he's come unto us, the Gentiles, the gospel, the good news. And Jesus has received for himself a bride. What is his bride? Gentile, the bride of Christ, you and I. And through that bride, he's received many children, of which we are just a small representation of the many, many children that he has received through the bride of Christ. Now, like Joseph of old, like Moses, Jesus is going to turn his attention once again to where? Israel. And he's going to rescue Israel. That's what we've been looking at. That's what I want you to understand, you see. So as Stephen is giving his defense, and he uses those two examples that they rejected. They rejected Joseph. They rejected Moses. They rejected Jesus. But there's coming that day of acceptance when they will see him whom they have pierced. Now, where did we look? Where were we last week? Zechariah. Turn me to Zechariah's prophecy, chapter 12. I think we ended off at uh, chapter 13, about verse 3. But let's go back there. I can rehearse for you where we were, and then we'll launch off after that. How's that? I said chapter 12 of Zechariah. Zechariah, second to the last book of the Bible. Remember, you go to Matthew, take one turn to the left, and you come to the Italian prophet. What's his name? Malachi. Malachi. No, it's Malachi. It's Malachi. You go one more book to the left and you come to Zechariah. Go to Zechariah chapter 12 and 13 and 14, and hopefully that's what we're going to look at this morning and complete. We'll see how far we get. I so desire you to know the things that God wants us to know so that our minds are quieted and our hearts are at rest. And there's such a peace, such a joy, such an assurance that we would have this world is passing away in the lust thereof. What's your response to that? Hallelujah! <laughs> Hallelujah! This world is passing away in the lust thereof. Does that make some of you sad? Oh, you don't understand what opposition this world is in and how dark it is in comparison to what could have been, what shall be. Paradise regained, right? Yeah. So you should be overjoyed that we're approaching this time of which the Bible speaks more of than any other. This is exciting. This is what, for 2,000 years, the church has been waiting for. You understand that, don't you? Don't get caught up in the things of this world. That's a distraction. We're in the world, but we're not of the world, are we? No, no, no. So be careful. Be careful. You can't be so heavenly-minded, you know, earthly good. But you can't be no, so earthly-minded, you know, heavenly good. There's got to be this balance in your life, okay? Yeah. 
Well, Zechariah takes us out to that period. Now, we talked about the fact that in chapter 12, he mentions that day. In that day, five times. In chapter 13, three times. Chapter 14, seven times. In that day, in that day, in that day. And we talked about what that day represented. It was the day of the Lord. I can't wait for the day of the Lord, right? But it's a long day. It begins with the rapture of the church and ends at the end of the millennial reign of Christ. Will there be a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness will reign forever and ever and ever? Hallelujah. You don't seem too excited about all of this. What in the world is your problem? (laughs) I'm just waking up. Well, thankful Father has revealed to us so much of, going, of what is going to take place. So it would comfort our hearts. It would quiet our minds that he told us ahead of time so we'd not be in fear, right? And he talked about this, that day, the long day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, over a thousand plus years. But in chapter 12 of Zechariah, beginning in verse 1, it says, The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays out the foundations of the earth, forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all of the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples, and all all who would heave it away shall surely be cut in pieces. Though all, how many might all be in the Greek text? All, though all the nations of the earth are gathered together against it. In that day, says the Lord. Oh boy, here we go. Hmm? Jerusalem being a cup of trembling, a cup of drunkenness. And we talked about this last week. What did that cup represent? Judgment. The cup of, the cup of trembling or the cup of drunkenness represented judgment. Judgment by God. He's, they're going to drink that cup all the way down to the dregs. In other prophecies, we're told that complete wrath of God will be drank by the nations of the world because they've come against Jerusalem. Two reasons for Gentile judgment. Please let me repeat myself. I do it over and over. Old Testament, New Testament, the two reasons for judgment, you've dispersed my people Israel throughout the nations of the world. And we did, didn't we? And you divided my land. When was Israel divided? When was Jerusalem divided by the Gentile powers of the earth? When? When was it divided? It was never divided. It's yet to happen. It's going to happen. What is everybody crying out now, from the Biden administration to the, to the crown prince in Saudi Arabia and everyone else in the world are crying out that there's only one solution to the Israeli-Palestinian problem, and what is it? A two-state solution. How is it they think they have the right to divide the land that God gave to his people. Hmm? Just as they think they have the right to redefine marriage and all of the other abominable acts of man against the will of God, right? Hmm. Well, that's coming very soon where Israel is going to be forced into the division of the land, the two-state solution, where even Jerusalem, the holy city, the city of peace will be divided. And it will bring about almost... The suicide, the national suicide of Israel. That's what he's coming against. Oh, yes, it'll be a a cup of trembling, a cup of drunkenness, drank to the dregs until it makes you sick, becomes a poison to your soul. 
And then he said to be a heavy stone. What does it say there? Look at that. I don't think we talked about that last time, did we? Did I give you commentary on that? And then I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples who would heave it away. Surely they'll be cut in pieces. All the nations of the earth gathered together against it. But in that day, says the Lord, what does that mean, a heavy stone? They want to heave it away. I wonder, I wonder how many nations of the earth would really be pleased if Israel just didn't exist, if this problem would just go away. How often, you know, we, we'd like to see some of the problems we have in life just kind of disappear, just kind of go away. And uh, let me tell you something. Most state departments and most nations on the face of the earth would like to see the Israeli problem go away. It began in the 50s, right after World War II. We decided we would exchange Arab oil for Jewish blood. We really didn't care about the Jews. We had a guilty complex. Our guilt complex caused us to allow there to be the nation of Israel, England, us, the allies. But we would rather the problem go away and we could exploit the Middle East of all of its resources, especially the, the treasure of gold, of oil, black gold. Today, we gladly sacrifice Israel for some kind of false peace in the world. You see what's happened yesterday throughout so many major cities in the United States. These crazies rioting in protest of Israel in favor of Hamas. What insanity is this? What madness? Who has bewitched them? When did that begin? You know, we, we had a, a social revolution in the 60s. How many of you grew up in the 60s? I grew up in the 60s. We had a social and a sexual revolution, didn't we? A whole generation of Americans standing against the establishment. Some, some causes, some reasons justified, but the yeah, actions not. But what happened to all those leftists, those Marxists, those socialists, those communists who grew up in that period? What did they do? Yeah, they become professors in our universities, academicians. And now look at the influence they've had on the last two generations. And this present generation of Americans who hate us and everything we stand for. Why? Because they have been bewitched. They've been brainwashed. Ideology. That's what ideology from idiots. <laughs> but that's what's happening today now. And short of the intervention of God to bring about some, some semblance of sanity, there's no hope for this generation. They're lost in themselves and their ideology. And so is the globe. Dark spiritual forces. Hmm? But they would heave this stone away, Israel. They would heave this problem away. And God talks about them being living stones, right? upon which he'll build his temple. But it's a stone too heavy for them to lift. Oh, it's a burdensome stone, for sure. But of those nations who would desire to heave it away, to throw it out of existence, it will be to their ruin. As we talked about, I don't think we mentioned that, about the stone last week. Yes, 
In that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion, its riders with madness. I will open my eyes upon the house of Judah. I will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. The governors of Judah shall say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength in the Lord of hosts, their God. Adonai Sebaot, the mighty warrior. We talked about that before. The most common there, the, most, the name that God uses more than any other in the Old Testament to describe himself. The Lord of the armies of the mighty warrior, El Gabor. Mm, the mighty one. Yes, the Lord of hosts, their God. And in that day, verse 6, I will make the governors of Judah like a fire pan in the wood pile and li like a fiery torch in the sheaves, and they shall devour the surrounding peoples on the right and on the left hand. But Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, Jerusalem. Whose city is Jerusalem? It's God's city. God gave it to the Jews. When did he do that? In the days of David when it was a Jebusite stronghold. The Jebusites lived there. No one could conquer them. But then God told David, I'm going to give it over to you, David. It'll be the place where you will meet with me. The place that I have chosen. Where's the holy city? No, it's not Rome. <laughs> oh, that's what I grew up believing. No, the holy city is Jerusalem, because God determined that. And the Lord, once again, reestablished Jerusalem. But before then... Unfortunately, God has revealed that the worst is yet to come for the Jewish people. I think there's going to be a real testing of who really is the Lord's and who is not within the Gentile world, the Goyam, based upon where you stand with Israel. We know that there's a worldwide persecution of the Jews coming once again, which is going to be far worse than the Holocaust. But that persecution is also going to come to the Gentile church, the bride that's going to support her. Is that you? Will you support her to the end? Will you suffer whatever it is you need suffer? We need to pray. Pray that God individually, God collectively will give us the strength and the boldness to stand with Israel when all of the world will be against her and against the Messiah of Israel and the Christ of the church. Hmm? Will you stand? Hmm? That's going to be the test. Yes, the Lord will save the tents of Judah first so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah. He's going to save the kingdom. He's going to save the city. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Who's going to do this? America, right? No, 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 no. Just as I shared with you before, we were in our study on Wednesday nights in Ezekiel, and God begins to judge the Gentile nations of the world from chapter 24 on to about 32. And the last nation to be judged was Egypt. And why did he judge Egypt? Because they had betrayed Israel. But Israel, why was Israel being judged? Uh, punished, excuse me. Punishment is temporal, judgment is permanent. Why was he punishing Israel? Because they put their alliance and their trust in Egypt and not in the God of Israel. And that's true of Israel today, you know. The overwhelming majority of Israel is secular. They don't understand their feast days. As they were finishing up the most celebrated of all feasts, the Feast of Tabernacles. We'll talk about that in a minute, chapter 14. But the Feast of Tabernacles was... Uh, 
memorializing, commemorating everything that God did on behalf of his people Israel when he was delivering under the bondage of Egypt. Forty years of the wilderness wandering. Water, quail, manna, the provision of God. Then the protection of God, a, a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. But they have forgotten all of that, haven't they? And who is Israel relying upon now? The United States of America. A reed in the swampland that when they lean upon it, it'll purse, pierce through their hand. When they lean upon it, it'll take their shoulder out of joint. The United, listen, the United States cannot be trusted. And God is going to have to judge the United States for our sin. I believe that chastisement has already begun. But God will punish Israel for putting their reliance upon the United States rather than upon the God of Israel. Just as is old, history is repeating itself once again. But God says he, he will come to the defense of Israel, to the defense of Jerusalem. Yes, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the one who is feeble among them. In that day shall be like David. The house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. Wow. We said the common people will be as mighty warriors as David was, and the house of David will be like God himself, like the angel of the Lord. What happened when the Assyrians came against Israel and Hezekiah prayed to God that God would deliver them? He wasn't looking for an alliance with any other nation. He wasn't looking for Egypt to preserve them. Hezekiah got on his knees and put on sackcloth and ashes and said, God, you help us, God. This is what we receive from them, but it isn't addressed to me, God. It's addressed to you. And what did God do in that day? One angel. One angel. What did one angel do? 185,000 of the Assyrians in one night. One angel. Jesus said, don't you know, if my father willed, he would send a host of angels on that day in which he was betrayed. Did they take his life? No, he laid down his life. The Old Testament example we have of that? The Akadah, Genesis 22, the binding of Isaac. Isaac laid down his life. There was no struggle between him and Abraham. He submitted to the will of the Father as Jesus submitted to the will of his Father and his sacrifice and his laying down of his life. Hmm? Yes, even the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them, and it shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Who's seeking to destroy all these Gentile nations? Perfect love. I want you to understand this. As you're reading the scriptures, and it's making reference to Jesus, either directly or indirectly, implicit or explicit, I want you to understand that that is perfect love. There's no other love than Christ's love, and it's a perfect love. And it's perfect love that seeks to destroy all the nations of the world that have come against his people Israel. It will be perfect love in that day and that hour when just in two judgments he destroys half, he, he, perfect love, destroys half the population of the world. 
I, there shouldn't be new information for any of you. That was described for us in the book of the Revelation, one, shun, singular, not plural, relation, the revelation of Jesus Christ at the revealing of perfect love. His justice has to go forth. And in the exercise of his justice, in just two judgments, four billion people are gone. He brings more terror to the world than it has ever seen before or since. A day of judgment and a day of trial, a day of tribulation such as was never been before, nor will ever be again, Jesus said. And that's the exercise of perfect world doesn't understand any of this. They will experience it, but they don't believe it. Is that not true? Yes. Yes, I will destroy all, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out upon the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look upon me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one who mourns for his only son, and grieve for him who grieves for his firstborn. If you really understand the scriptures and uh, soteriology, our salvation, right? That's all that soteriology is, the study of salvation. Soteria comes from the root word sozos. Which is sozos? Rescue, rescue. How's it spelled? Isois, Isois. That's an international distress call. Comes from that word. Sozo, Isois, Isois. Rescue us, Lord. Rescue us, Lord. And so when you understand the rescue that God brought about, now please don't misunderstand me. Don't misquote me. You do, I'll spank you. But. In a strange way, God has sacrificed two sons. Who's the firstborn that he sacrificed? Israel, his place with Israel. The rejection of the Messiah by Israel caused such pain and suffering for the Jewish people, but it brought about our salvation. But our salvation is through the sacrifice in the blood of Jesus Christ alone, plus nothing, okay? Please understand me. But it came through the Jewish people, through Israel. Fascinating. What debt of love do we owe them? There should be never be any anti-Semitism whatsoever in the church. As Paul would describe, we have such a debt of love that we owe them. But yet, yet, surprisingly, yet amazingly, we see such anti-Semitism growing in the church. Amazing. Lack of understanding. No, he's going to rescue them. We talked about the spiritual restoration of the people. I mean, excuse me, the first part of Zechariah talks about the physical restoration of the people. Now he's talking about the spiritual restoration of them. How he's going to pour out his spirit upon them. In verse 10 he says, I will, I will, I will, I will. Who does this? Is Israel seeking God? No. But God sought after Israel. Hmm? I will pour it on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look upon me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn as one who mourns for his only son, grieve for him as one who grieves for their firstborn. In that day there should be a great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning at Hadad Rimen. That's when Josiah died, the great King Josiah, in the plain of Megiddo, the Ezra Valley, 
where the war of Armageddon will be fought, where God will judge the nations of the world, and the land shall mourn, every family by itself, the family of David by itself, the family and their wives by themselves, the family of Nathan, the family of Levi, the family of Shemei. And we talked about that mourning that was going to take place. It's going to be a national mourning from the rich to the poor, from the king to the paupers. Everyone will mourn. The eldest to the youngest. Do you remember when John Kennedy was assassinated? I remember that day. How many remember that day? There was a mourning throughout the whole nation, whether you voted for him or not. Our president was assassinated. What are we, a banana republic? And now we know who killed John Kennedy. Not everybody was mourning. Lyndon Johnson wasn't mourning. The CIA wasn't mourning. Why weren't they mourning? Because they killed him. You understand the evidence has come out now after so many years now? How long has our nation been corrupt? Well, how long has it, has it existed? But here, this morning, a national mourning. And what are they mourning for? What are they all awakened to? What, what is this repentance, this sorrow? Because they've rejected their own Savior, the Messiah. I, I grew up in a culture. My father was a World War II vet. I grew up where men didn't cry. You didn't cry. You didn't show that emotion. You didn't show that pain. No, no, no. And if you did, you were weak. And then in 1980, I got saved. And I cried for six months. And I still cry. I can't stop crying. Oh, first I cried because I hurt him so. The Jews didn't kill him. The Romans didn't kill him. My sin killed him. My sin put him on And when I think about how I rejected him, how I betrayed him, how I misrepresented him, how I acted like he was completely irrelevant in my life, I can, I can mourn and cry. But now there's a rejoicing, right? And that's what Israel's going to do. All oh, their mourning will be turned to joy. But why is it described this way? Because the king's family, because the prophets, because the priests, because all the common people will all mourn because of what they've done and the rejection of Jesus. Verse 13, or chapter 13, verse 1. In that day a mountain shall be opened for the house, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David, for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and uncleanness. Through the prophet Jeremiah declares that my people have committed two evils against me. Two great evils. What were they? You have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. And you've hewed out for yourself cisterns, broken cisterns which hold no water. How long can you survive without water? Just a few days. Just a few days. How long can you survive without that living water? You can't at all. Jesus would speak of those who rejected that fountain of living water. He said they are dead while they yet live. The walking dead. Zombies. That's the first zombie. And what is he saying there? Where, where does your life support come from? That fountain of living water. As... as Stephen would declare to the Sanhedrin, it was God through Moses that gave us the living oracles, the living word, the word of life. But if you ignore it, if you're not alive to it, it's a dead word, isn't it? 
Yes, they rejected that fountain of living water, but God is going to purpose that once again they come to the fountain and drink freely. Awakening to a new life. Yes, if any man be in Christ, he's a new. Old things have, behold, all things have become. Oh, that's what's going to happen for Israel. Yes, verse 2, in that day, in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they shall no longer be remembered. I will also cause the prophets and the unclean spirits to depart from the land. I think that's where we ended off last week, isn't it? You don't remember. It was just last week. <laughs> the idols will be taken from them, those, those, those props, those, those things that they were trusting and they were finding their security in. What were some of those idols that we talked about last week? Materialism, the worship of Baal. Baal is nothing. It's just a, a, their imagination, their own invention, because they're trying to justify their own lust. But their materialism, Baal is a worship of materialism. And boy, have we not been affected in this society. My neighborhood had another garage sale. Every year they have the garage sale. You know why? Because they got to get rid of all the new stuff they bought last year and don't use, and now they're going to buy more new stuff, put it in their garage to satisfy their lustful desires for stuff. You never have enough stuff. When is enough enough? The worship of Baal, materialism. Worshiping the gifts rather than the giver. And then Astra, the worship of sexual pleasure. We have a lot of promiscuity, sex outside of marriage. What happens? And even within marriage now, look, look at the birth rate. We don't regard children the way we should. We don't destroy them in the womb. When they come out of the womb, we drive them mad. And then eventually, eventually, you desire your will to be done, and then it's the worship of Nemash. Do what thou wilt. Every man did what was right in their own eyes. The plurality of false prophets in that day, prophesying falsely. God had not spoken. We're, many of them today, just get on YouTube. Dreams and visions, go ahead. Unbelievable. Contrary to the word of God. Why? Because they're receiving the rhema, not the logos. You know the difference between the rhema and the logos? Logos is a written word. Logos is the Bible. The rhema is a revelatory knowledge that comes upon them, they say. Hey, how many of you grew up in Catholicism? It's no different when the Pope would pontificate, when he would speak ex cathedra, when we'd sit on his vicar of Christ, Christ on earth, and he would pontificate, even if it was contrary to the scriptures, you had to believe what the Pope was saying. Because he was actually Christ on earth at that moment. And anything he said that superseded the word of God, you had to believe, because God was doing something new, something different. Well, that's what hyper-Pentecostalists say when they talk about the rhema versus the logos. You ever listen to these wackos? False. Uh, well, I do, just to get my blood pressure up. You know, I feel a little... <laughs> no, you know, when I got a job to do and I'm a little lethargic, you know, and I just don't feel... I just get my blood pressure going, where go? I'll, I'll get this done now. They got me fired up now. I'm going to work. <laughs> yeah. So the prophets. Now, what, wait a minute. What else is he taking from the land besides the false prophets? What else does it say? It's an open book test. Look down. Read the text. Unclean spirits. What might they be? Demons. 
He who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. Who is that? The church. Do you realize how much the gospel of Jesus Christ has, re has restrained demonic activity worldwide? Now, if you look at the difference when the gospel went west as opposed to what happened east, east, there was demonic influences tremendously in east. Egypt, uh, excuse me, uh, India, China, Japan, all the demonic worship that took place there in the east. But west, what happened west? Europe, and then across the ocean to the United States. Those demonic forces were restrained. He will restrain. He'll do so until he's taken out of the way. The gospel had taken those unclean spirits and stuffed them in a box temporarily. They were restrained. Why? Because the light was let in. What happens when you turn the light on? What happens to those cockroaches? We call them palmetto bugs, trying to sanctify them. But they're cockroaches. What happens when you turn the light on? Prrr, they flee. Huh? And with the light of the gospel, all those demonic forces were restrained. They had, to, they had to flee for a time. Oh, but we see what's happening now. There's such a re Listen, they're coming back with a vengeance. Jesus said, you can clean the house of that demonic spirit, but if you don't replace that void with the person of Jesus Christ, what happens? Seven more, far worse than himself. Listen, listen to me, beloved. You, you don't have to believe me. Please, do your own research. Investigate what is happening. They've come back with a vengeance in our society. They've come back with a vengeance in the West and throughout the world now. Do you recognize what's going to happen when the body of Christ... I'm not talking about Christendom with the emphasis upon the dumb. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, read Matthew 13, where Jesus talks about the mystery kingdom that will exist at this present time, what we call the church age or the dispensation of the Gentiles. At this time, it's Christendom. Why? Because it's comprised of true believers and make-believers, true doctrine and read the parables that Jesus gives. There's no other way to explain and understand them. And I want to suggest to you there are far more make-believers than there are believers. Is that not true? What's the one objection that most, most unbelievers have of coming into the church? It's filled with? And I tell you, you're right. I say, you're right. But there is the body of Christ, isn't there? And you need to make that distinction as well between the body of Christ and Christendom. You need to listen with your... Don't listen with your ears. Listen with your... Because people live what they believe. Believe me. See for yourself. It's true. Oh, but in that day, when the spirit of, spirit of supplication and grace falls upon Israel, they'll look upon him whom they... There's going to be such a, you know, such a rebirth of the nation. A new man. Born from above. Born anew. Yes. And then there'll be those attempted false prophets once again, but they're going to be able to discern the greatest need in the church right now today is discernment. There's such a lack of discernment. It's amazing to me the, the multitude of people that follow these heretics don't realize they're Pied Pipers leading him into the river to drown. Don't you find that amazing? It's amazing to me when we have such an ability to interpret the scriptures like never before. There's such ignorance with regard to the scriptures they said he believed in. 
I tell my son all the time, you got to tell those Baptists, you know, they say they stand on the Bible. Well, tell them to get off and read it. <laughs> but isn't it true? I came here from Albany, New York in 1989, long time ago. 1989, I came here, and you know what Albany, New York's claim to fame is? It's the most biblically illiterate city in the country. In Albany, New York, if somebody says they're a believer, you better believe it, because it's not popular. I came down here to the promised land, and there's a, there's a church on every corner. You know, I didn't know that as a result of so many splits. <laughs> Everybody has their family church. <laughs> My family started this church. My family owns this church. You know. <laughs> oh, but in Albany, we have a strip joint or a bar in every corner. It's not a church. And if you're a believer in Albany, there's a good chance you're a believer. And then I came here. Everybody's a believer. Everybody's a Christian. Do you believe? Yes, I believe. I just, I just don't act like one. That's what a man said. I, yeah, I, I, just don't, I just don't act like one. Well, if you don't act like one... You ain't one, right? Because the Holy Spirit's going to work in your life to change you. Hmm. Oh, but in that day, all Israel, all Israel will be saved. They'll all be believers. No more false prophets. Look what's going to happen as a result of their shame and the guilt that they feel and their repentance. Yes, it shall come to pass that everyone who prophesies when his father and mother who begot him will say to him, you shall not live because you spoke lies in the name of the Lord and the father and mother who begot him shall trust them through when he prophesies. Verse 4, and it shall be in that day that every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies and they will not wear a robe of coarse hair and to deceive. Why, why the robe of coarse hair? What was that representing? Yeah, imitating John the Baptist. More importantly, imitating Elijah. Elijah, the one great prophet, right? Elijah the Tishbite. I love that guy, you know? I mean, can you imagine what Elijah the Tishbite was like? When Eli He's a man's man, boy. You don't want to mess with Elijah. Elijah walked into your town. You were shaken right away. What's going to happen now? He was no mamby-pamby, okay? Elijah the Tishbite. Well, they were wearing coarse hair, leather belts, trying to imitate. Becomes, they were trying to present themselves as something they were not. Don't ever do that. Be who thou art. And be honest to God. And God will change your life. Which of us really measure up? Which of, which of us are really happy with our relationship with God? You shouldn't be. You should never be satisfied completely. No, no, no. It's like growing to try to become the husband that this woman needs me to be. But uh, I'm just not Jesus. You thought you married Jesus, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. But we're all, we're all striving, aren't we? Oh, but one day, one day we'll reach that vanishing point where we look just like Jesus, and then we won't be here anymore, thank God. <laughs> Remember Enoch? Yeah, Enoch reached that vanishing point, and he was no more. He was with the Lord. Yeah. Yeah, they won't pretend any longer. They'll say, I'm a farmer, for a man taught us to keep cattle for my youth. And one will say, what are these wounds between your arms? Is that the correct translation there? No, no. The correct, what are these wounds on your hands is the correct translation. Does your Bible say hands? Yeah. Good, that's what it should be. What are these wounds in your hands? Yes. And they will answer with those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. 
And Jesus will say to them, and he said, he said, look, look at my hands. What's in his hands? The inscription of your name and their name. He endured the suffering of the cross for the joy that lied therein. What was the joy? In saving you, me, Israel. It's not just Israel that's inscribed in his hands. You're inscribed in his hands. Every man and woman who perishes will go before the throne of God. And as they're there before the throne, either Satan is going to take possession of them or Jesus is. Do you understand that? There'll be many where Satan will say, he belongs to me. He's coming with me. Then there's nothing God will do. But there'll be those whom Jesus will say, Father, see? Here's their name. They're mine. They come with me. Do you know that you know that you know that your name is written, inscribed on his hands, in the Lamb's book of life? Do you know that? And there's no reason why anyone should not be assured of the salvation that Jesus brings. And then he prophesies crucifixion, the suffering of the Christ. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, kindred, says the Lord of hosts. Now, he had to be fully man and fully God, right? But he had to be fully man in order to die for our sins. Why? I'm sorry? Yes, yes, because sin came through the first man, Adam, and now we need to be born again through another man, Jesus. Through that first man, Adam, sin entered the world, and, and the sin nature of every one of us. Is that not true? Yeah. We call it a sin gene. We talked about genes before. My family's genetic makeup is too good. I'm going to be here longer than I want to be. The Lord tarry. I hope he doesn't tarry. Maybe this afternoon. What do you think? But nonetheless, you know, some people have a unfortunate uh, condition because of their genetic makeup, because of their family background for sugar diabetes or heart disease or whatever the case may be. That may be some of you, you know, that these maladies are within your family, hereditary. What can you do about it? What can you do about your genetic makeup? Can you change it? No. But your spiritual genetic makeup. You can, you know. You were born in the family of Adam. Sin gene. Carried on throughout the generations. And in order to remedy the problem, Jesus said you must be born. You got to be born into another family. You need a new set of genes. And he gave it to us, didn't he? When we're born again, the sin problem is dealt with. No more. In order to be a priest in Israel, what did you have to have? Levi jeans. Levi jeans. <laughs> oh, Nicodemus, don't you know? In order to inherit the kingdom of God, you must be born again. You can't, you can't come the way you are. No, 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 no. There must be a new you. Right? And Jesus provides that through the new birth. Amen? Yeah our companion, our kindred. 
Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, and then I will turn my hand against the little ones. Well, we know what happened that night that he was crucified. He was arrested, and what happened? Where'd the apostles go? Every man for his life, every man for himself, run head for the hills, except... Oh, isn't that interesting? That's an interesting study in itself, you know. Does, John, does Jesus show partiality? Favoritism? Some say no. Some say, well, let me give you an example. He fed the multitudes, and from the multitudes, he selected 35 evangelistic teams. They went out two by two. Remember the 70? And they came back rejoicing. And then from the 70, he reduced it down to the 12. Prayed, prayed all night. Prayed all night, and he selected the 12 that they might be. That's the answer. Listen, you, you know why Jesus selected you? You know I married the girl? You know why the girl, more importantly, married me? She wanted to be with me. Now, I can't sit on the couch all day long, every day, just talking with you, okay? Got to do some work, but I do like sitting on the couch talking with you. But, we, we, you know, we marry one another so that we can be with each other, right? So much better together than alone. It cuts our sorrows in half, and it doubles our joy, doesn't it? Yeah. Jesus called you so that you could be with him. Not, listen, not for what you could do for him. That comes as a byproduct of being with him. Hmm. The multitude, the 70, the 12, and from the 12 he selected the three. Who were the three? Peter, James, and, Peter, James, and John saw and experienced things that none of the others ever did, ever. And then he reduced the three to the, and who was the one? Why was that? You've got to think about that. Yes, yeah, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And then, listen, 11, well, 10, actually, because the one had already left previously at the Seder. Remember? The last Passover Seder. He left. But then we had the 10, and of the 10, nine ran. But one, one stayed with him, risking his life, stayed with him unto death. If he had to die with Christ, he would have. John and the women. Such love, such devotion, such commitment, such resolve, such a constitution. May we all have that. And as a result, just something for you to think about. As a result, the other 10 all died a martyr's death, didn't they? Didn't they? Now, how did John die? He died of old age. He died an old man in the arms of the church of Ephesus that he loved so much, and they loved him. Every Sunday, you know, they, Lord's Day, that's when they celebrate Sunday. They look to carry him in on a cot, you know, because he's going to be such an old man. And he'd raise himself up, and what would he say? Love one another. So when I get old, you're going to carry me in, and I'll say, love one another, and love me too. <laughs> you have to ask yourself why that was. And, and the other ten had to, had to prove their devotion and their love for him through martyrdom. Because they ran. Every man for himself. I don't think I can stand with Israel. I don't want to go through the persecution. I want to run. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. Yes, strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. Then I will turn my hand against the little one. Who are the little ones? 
those who would believe, those Messianic Jews who would believe, who was the first one? We're reading about him in chapter 7, Acts. Stephen. Stephen's the little one. Stephen's the first one. The first one of many who would suffer, be persecuted, martyrdom, be killed for his faith in Christ. That's what he's talking about. Now, now he's going to go way out into our time, into the future. And he says that two-thirds of it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left. And I will bring one-third through the fire. We'll refine them as silver is refined. Test them as gold is tested. And they shall call upon my name, and I will answer them. And I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. Hallelujah. Paul declares in Acts 14.22 that through many tribulations, Israel will enter the kingdom. In 2021, do you know how many Jews there were worldwide? How many Jews existed worldwide? 15.2 million. That's all. I historically have said that the Jews were half of 1% of the population. That's not true. You know what percentage they are of the population? A tenth of 1%. The Jews are one-tenth of 1% of the population. Yet there's such an uh, obsessive preoccupation with the Jews in the world today. The United Nations passed most of its declarations against what nation? One-tenth of one percent? Yet they comprise what percentage of the Nobel Peace Prize winners, uh, prize winners in, in, in all different fields of study and discipline? Over 30 percent? How, how can one-tenth of one percent of the population actually contribute so much to the world that 30% of the prize winners in every discipline, every field of study, is just as a Jew. Yeah, the promise made by God to Abraham, that through your descendants, Abraham, I will bless. 15.2 million in 2021, so there's probably a little bit more than that right now. But what is Zechariah declaring for us? What's going to happen? that there's coming another holocaust. The, the word holocaust in the Hebrew, what is the English translation? Burnt offering. A burnt offering is a holocaust. In the Old Testament, if you look at burnt offering, it's the word holocaust. It's a holocaust. What was the holocaust? The offering of Israel. What was the holocaust? The offering of Jesus. What's the Holocaust? The, the next offering of Israel, when they're grafted back in, when they're accepted, it'll be as if one comes back from the dead. Remember we talked about that last week? What an exciting day that'll be. But until then, listen to me, until then, the worst is yet to come for Israel. Listen, you need to understand something. All the nations of the world will come against Israel very soon. Why? Because it's in God's word. He said it. And we see it forming. We see it taking place. Israel can't win this. So if it happens tomorrow, how many Jews are going to be killed? 10 million. 10 million Jews are going to be killed. Does that bother you? bothers me. But that sacrifice, that final sacrifice of the Jews will bring about the salvation of the world. All creation cries out. What is it crying out? Creation. Romans 8. What is it crying out? To be restored. All creation groans and moans. It wants to be restored back to paradise. Sin has affected everything. Doesn't it? Erroneously, some people believe that their sin only affects them. Does your sin only affect you? No. 
No, my sin would affect a multitude of people in my life, and more importantly, it affects him. Oh, but the restoration is going to affect the whole world when they're restored back to God. But there's going to be a suffering such as they've never, never experienced before nor will ever experience again so that God can restore paradise. Isn't that wonderful? Now, this is, listen, this is what's happening. This is what we're on the threshold of. Israel is fighting a war on how many fronts? Gaza, the West Bank, Hezbollah, Lebanon, the Houthis in Yemen. At least, at least five, right, are coming after them. More to come. What's that one NATO nation that's lost its mind? Turkey. Turkey. And who are they aligned with? Russia. And who are Russia and Turkey aligned with? Iran. Iran. And what does the Bible predict that in the last days, very shortly, what's going to come? A confederation of nations led by Russia, Iran, Persia, and Turkey to come against Israel because they're committing a genocide in Palestine. They're trying to destroy the Palestinians. Is that true? No, no. But that's what the world believes right now. That's the conclusion they're coming to. And they're all going to step in. But we, we know when that takes place, who intervenes? Who's going to protect them? The United States of America. Truth, justice, and the American way. Is that? No, no. Who's going to step in? God. God's going to step in. Mm. Yes. They will be refined as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested, and they will call upon my name, and I will answer them. This is my people, and I am their God. Removing the dross, right? When a metallurgist was, was refining gold and silver in that day, he kept removing the dross. You know, because a low melting point, right? They melt the gold, the precious metal. They melt the silver. And then they keep skimming the dross off and skimming the dross off and skimming the dross off. How's it working out for you? 43 years you've been skimming the dross. How much more can there be left? He's still working on me. And the metallurgist had to do that until what? until he could see his reflection in the molten metal. Jesus has to constantly remove the dross of our life. Until when? Until he can see his reflection in your life. Do you, do you look like Jesus to the most important people around you? Do they say, you know, boy, you're, you're just so Christ-like every day in every way, every month that goes by, every year, you just seem to be more like Jesus. You're changing. <laughs> you want to share that, John? <laughs> Okay. <laughs> but that should be true of our life, beloved. I, I ask my wife all the time, please, you know, tell me. I don't see it. I still live inside here. I don't like this guy very much. You? I'm not talking about me. <laughs> Israel is going to be refined, just as we are being refined right now. This is my God. And they will be his people. Turn with me to Isaiah 63. We got time? Yeah, we got time.
when you get to Isaiah 63, hold your finger there and go to Micah. That might take you a little longer. Micah chapter 2. You keep going to the right. After you find Isaiah, go to the right. You know where John is? All right, once you're lost in the whale, then go one more book. It's a great fish, actually. It wasn't a whale. Did Jonah actually die? No. Yes. Jonah actually died. You know, there's some debate about that, but as you read the text, you understand Jonah died. Isaiah 63, you there? Okay, now go to Micah, chapter 2, you there? Okay, if you're not there, I'll wait. So important that you have a good working knowledge of, your, of the scriptures of your Bible, you know? I, I know it's so easy. I got the Bible app on my phone and on my laptop and on my little devices, you know, but it's, it's so easy, but it's cheating. When I'm alone with just the word of God, I need to know where to go. I need to know the streets and the addresses, right? Isn't it important? Because one day, one day, you know, what, what, if, what if you don't have your electronic devices anymore? Turn to, uh, <laughs> yeah, what if you don't have GPS, right? Yeah, I married my beloved. I taught her how to read a map. How many know how to read a map? You know, most people don't know how to read a map anymore. I mean, really read a map, you know? Well, this is our map right here. It tells you where you are and how to get to where you need to go, right? The compass, yeah. Isaiah 63, all right, look over there. Chapter 63, verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom? Where's Edom? Where's Edom? It's Edom. It's down there. She said down there. Edom is Jordan, right? Jordan is the ancient city of the descendants of Esau. Esau. It was the ancient kingdom of the, uh, of the descendants of Esau, the Edomites. And what was the principal city that they would retreat to whenever they were attacked? Petra. Petra. Some of you know this? You don't know this. You need to study the city of Petra because that's precisely where the remnant of Jews are going to escape to during this time that we're talking about. This is a very near future. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah? Bozrah is just outside of Petra. It's a principal ancient city within Edom. This one who is glorious in apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, and I speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Who is this? This is Jesus Christ, coming from Bozrah, from Edom. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads the winepress? Where's he coming from? Where's he coming from? He's coming from Bozrah. Where's he coming from, specifically, technically? Where are the Jews going to flee to? Petra. And who's going to deliver them out of Petra, out of that Edomite fortress, and bring them back to Jerusalem to re-inhabit the world during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ? And, con and Christ comes from the king's highway, from Bozrah to Jerusalem, with those captives, with the remnant that's going to survive. It's a fascinating truth. That's going to be revealed very soon. I said to go to Micah. Micah where? Micah 2. Uh, look at verse 12. Do you have a heading over, your, over verse 12 in your Bible? What is it? The remnant of who? 
Israel, that's right, the remnant regathered. Now he's talking about the same thing, the same thing we're reading in Zechariah, same thing that Isaiah is declaring in 63, the same thing that Micah is talking about here in chapter 2, verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12. Israel restored. I will assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. Listen, it's never been any more than a remnant, whether it's the Gentiles or the Jews. It's never been the majority. The rupture, the rapture is a rupture. Okay? Jesus said in the apocalyptic literature of Luke 21, pray always, what? That you will be found worthy to escape these things. Wait a minute. Everybody's gone. Why do I have to pray that I'm found worthy if everybody's raptured? Makes no sense at all. Jesus has given me a warning that has no teeth. Would he do that? No, never. Nay, no, no, no. Beloved, listen to me, beloved. It's never been anything more than a remnant. And you want to make sure that you know that you know that you know you're the remnant. There's a remnant of Israel. And there's a remnant of believers in Christendom. It's called the body of Christ. Yes, I will surely gather the remnant of Israel and I will put together, and I will put them together like sheep of, what's it say? Now, do you have a study Bible? If you have a study Bible, it should have a note there. Do you have a note? What's the note say? Bozrah. Bozrah. If you go back and you look at the Hebrew text, the word there is Bozrah. He's gathering together the remnant, the sheep from Bozrah, just as Isaiah said in 63, just as he's declaring here in Micah, just as Zechariah is revealing to us that Jesus Christ, when he returns, he's going to go and get the remnant of Israel, and he's going to save them, and he's going to bring them to Jerusalem from the king's highway. Who is this who comes from Bozrah with dyed garments, robes? What does a robe represent? Regality. He's the king. He's the Lord of lords. He's the king of kings. The ruler of the world. He comes back. Just a side note. Go back to Zechariah now. Don't you love how the Bible is so self-interpretive? The Bible interprets itself. So listen to me. The more you know about Scripture, the more your ability to interpret Scripture because the scriptures interpret scripture. Now, we live in a contemporary age where most contemporary pastors tell you, don't read the Old Testament. How preposterous is that? How crazy is that? How insane is that? What percentage of pastors today teach Bible prophecy, eschatology? 2%. 2%. The rest of them say, oh, you just forget Israel, forget Bible prophecy, just focus on Christology. You cannot have a proper Christology, an understanding of Christ and the work of Christ, without having an understanding of the Old Testament, and particularly the Israelology of the Bible. I'm talking to my dermatologist, and he goes to a particular church. I won't mention the church, but he and his, And I said, well, your pastor, does he speak much about the Israelology of the Bible? Huh? Huh? I said, you have a systematic theology at home. He mentioned a couple. I said, do you have an Israelology in there? No. That's right. Why? Why don't they have an Israelology? Anti-Semitism. Where did it begin? Who's the first biggest anti-Semite in the, in the history of the church? Before him. Augustine. Augustine. Then Martin Luther. Listen, listen. The church is in desperate need of discernment. 
for 2,000 years, and more so now today than ever before. Do you understand the Israelogy of the Bible? Do you understand the Jewishness of our faith? We've been grafted in. They haven't been grafted in. We've been grafted in. And we're put on the natural branches. It goes back into the tree, which for he receives all the root and the strength and the nutrients from the, from the root up. Wow. You haven't saved Israel. Israel saved you. Do you understand that? Two major subjects of Scripture. Jesus, second one, Israel. Then why is, why is Israelology such a missing subject within a systematic theology? It should be number two. Christology, Israelology. Right? Hmm. Where was I? Part three next week. I'm sorry, I don't have enough time. There's too much stuff I need to share. Is it okay? All right, shall we stand, Pastor David? Thank you for listening to this message from Community Chapel of Greenville. For more information and to find more messages like this, please visit www.ccgreenville.org. It is our desire to see our Lord high and lifted up, and to see His people grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ.